Good morning. Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth, meaning, and beauty. I'm Chris Jimerson, Minister for Program Development here at the church, and I have with me our wonderful lay leader, Mary Jane Ford. We welcome each and every one of you here this morning. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine within every person. And it's in that tradition that I invite you to turn to those around you and greet the holy among us this morning. It's also our practice in Unitarian Universalist churches to begin our services by lighting a chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. Please join me in saying our words for lighting the chalice. We light the fire of truth and ask to be clear, wise, and humble enough to admit what we don't know. We kindle the warmth of community and ask for open-heartedness and patience. We are grateful to the spirit of life and ask to learn the secret to loving and being loved. Good morning. The call to worship is called Reverent Attention by Reverend Chris Jimerson. We gather in reverence. Mindful of the gift of each other and this, our beloved community, we gather in courage, focused on doing justice and growing the beloved community in our world. We gather in solemnity, mindful of the suffering, sorrow, and injustice still present in our world. We gather with gratefulness, expanding our awareness of the great beauty and wonder also to be found in our world. We gather to worship, turning our attention now to the sacred interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. In many situations, and I would argue especially for a religious community such as this one, it can be helpful to have a common purpose, something that turns our attention toward what we want to accomplish in the world, guides our decisions, our ministries. In this congregation, it's our mission. We wrote it together, we put it on our wall, and we say it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. If you want to know more about what we mean by beloved community, there's a great description of it from the Martin Luther King Center on a poster on the wall in our fellowship hall. And each week, to deepen our reflection on the meaning of beloved community and the challenges we still encounter for growing it, we have been asking those of us who identify as white to consider something that is likely outside our normal realm of experience. This week, I'd like to ask those of us who consider ourselves white to think about what I'm about to describe, while also acknowledging the folks among us who don't identify as white and who may have experienced the same or similar harm and hurt. So, it happened to a young girl simply selling water bottles on the sidewalk in front of her house. It happened to some folks just holding a barbecue in the picnic area of their local park. It happened to a couple of guys who were just sitting in a Starbucks waiting on a business associate to show up. It happened to a young woman taking a nap on the couch in the common area of her dormitory area. It happened to a 12-year-old boy cutting grass in his neighborhood just to earn some summertime spending money. 
These are just a few of the many examples of white people calling the police on black people who were just going about the daily activities of life. So I would ask those of us who identify as white, what would it be like to have someone call the police on you simply because of the hue of your skin? The meditation reading is from An Altar in the World by Barbara Brown Taylor. The practice of paying attention really does take time. Most of us move so quickly that our surroundings become no more than the blurred scenery we fly past on our way to somewhere else. We pay attention to the speedometer, the wristwatch, the cell phone, the list of things to do, all of which feed our illusion that life is manageable. Meanwhile, none of them meets the first criterion for reverence, which is to remind us that we are not gods. If anything, these devices sustain the illusion that we might yet be gods, if only we could find some way to do more faster. This is the time in our service where we breathe together. We breathe in and breathe out. And breathing together, feeling the loving presence of those all around us, we follow our breath to a deeper place inside, a place of greater wisdom. We turn our attention to that spark of the divine within each of us. And breathing together, we enter into a time of sacred silence together, remembering that the sounds of small children and human sounds are a part of the sacred silence in this congregation. Breathing in, breathing out, let us now enter into that time of sacred silence together.
Your attention is like a combination spotlight and vacuum cleaner. It highlights what it lands on and then sucks it into your brain for better or worse. That's a quote from psychologist, senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley and New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Rick Hansen. Later on, we'll come back to some of Dr. Hansen's ideas about how to grow the good in our brains through what he calls self-directed neuroplasticity. For the month of November, our religious education classes and activities have been exploring the question, what does it mean to be a people of attention? So this morning in worship, we'll, we'll turn our attention to attention. With so much vying for our attention these days, though, it can be easy to feel overwhelmed and distracted. We can end up just sort of moving through our hurried days on autopilot, simply reacting without much conscious thought or mindfulness of our lives, our world, our loved ones. I caught myself doing this just the other day. I'd had a long and somewhat frustrating day here at the church, having spent much of it struggling both online and over the phone with a financial institution that seemed to be fighting mightily not to release some funds that properly belonged to the church. I did get the funds eventually. Then, after I left my office here at the church, I made an evening pastoral visit, ran several errands, including picking up laundry from the dry cleaners, and finally made it home after dark, and late for dinner. When my spouse Wayne was on the couch reading and curled up with our two Basenji dogs, Louisa May Alcott and Benjamin Franklin, (laughs) they're good UU dogs, both dogs jumped up to greet me. And I walked right past them, went into the bedroom, closing the door behind me, hung the laundry in the closet, went into the bathroom and did my nighttime get-ready-for-bed routine, got my robe on, and only then emerged into the living room, suddenly realizing that I had absentmindedly walked past everybody without so much as an even perfunctory greeting. Wayne was kind enough not to give me a hard time about this. Lisa and Ben, not so much. A lot of scolding, complaining, and fussing at me ensued until I finally completed a proper greeting with them. And it's not surprising that we can so easily lapse into inattentive states like this in situations both small and more significant. We have so much competing for our attention these days. Our busy schedules, social media, social division. Cell phones, text messages, email messages, the Twitter monster in the White House, (laughs) impeachment hearings, and on and on. A recent study found that on average, each single minute results in 204 million emails, 16 million text messages, and 350,000 new tweets. The average smartphone user unlocks their phone in response to a notification between 80 and 110 times per day. Columbia University professor Tim Wu says that we are being subjected to a multi-billion dollar industry that devises ever more ingenious and intrusive ways to farm and monetize our attention. He calls them the attention merchants. And he says they offer us free services and content, social media, search engines, mass media that use targeted ads, clickbait, and sponsored articles and videos to lure our attention. 
Thus, having ensnared us into a distracted state wherein we're more susceptible to advertising, he says they harvest our attention for commercial exploitation. His words. I don't think Wu thinks very highly of the attention merchants. Here are some ways Wu and others say that we can try to avoid having our attention distracted by these types of tactics so that we can focus instead on our values, relationships, goals, just the moments of our lives that we may miss otherwise. Limit accessing news, social media, and the like to at least, at most twice per day. Turn our smartphones off when not expecting urgent or emergency calls or texts. Just check them a few times each day. Close down our email programs and only check email at a few set times every day. I sense a trend here. Go through your settings on all of your devices and turn off all but the most essential notification. Avoid clickbait. Articles or videos with sensational and or controversial titles or descriptions and look to see if a link contains the phrase sponsored article. If it does, don't follow it. Ignore Twitter monster tweets. Okay, actually, I said that last one. Well, Rachel Maddow and I did. Anyway, it turns out that gaining as much control as we can over where we focus our attention is important to our mental, physical, and spiritual well-being. Dr. Rick Hansen, whose quote I read at the beginning, describes how neurological research has shown that where we direct our attention can actually alter the structures and neural patterns of our brains. For example, London cab drivers develop thicker neural layers in their hippocampus, which is associated with visual spatial memory. And this is likely from them having, had, having been required to pay great attention to London's spaghetti snarl of streets in order to find their way around. Long-term meditators have been found to have changes in the brain associated with reduced anxiety and stress, along with several other neurological changes thought to have enduring psychological benefits. Now, in general, directing our attention mostly toward negative thoughts, emotions, and experiences wires the brain in ways that lead to greater reactivity, anxiety, depression, a focus on threats, and an inclination toward anger, sadness, and guilt. On the opposite side, directing our attention toward the generally positive aspects of our lives can lay down neural patterns conducive to resilience, realistic optimism, positive mood, a sense of worth, worth, and far less stress and anxiety. As Dr. Hansen says it, and perhaps a little bit of an oversimplification, mental states become neurological traits. Now, attention is also vital to our relationships with our loved ones, as well as at work and in our larger community and even here at the church. Sociologist, clinical psychologist, and MIT professor Sherry Turkle has studied this and found that relationships depend upon authentic conversation and that authentic conversation requires us to give our undivided attention to others as well as depends upon our own capacity for self-reflection. So, just a couple of practical notes here. If you're at home talking with your spouse and you take your smartphone out and start looking at the internet or checking Facebook, you're not paying attention. You're not having an authentic conversation. 
And if you meet your friend for lunch and, in the, and the entire time they're sharing something with you, you're mentally preparing for what you're going to say next, you're not paying attention. You're having a competition or an argument, but you're not having an authentic conversation. Now, I am mentioned that that capacity for self-reflection, paying attention to what's going on inside ourselves is also important. And this can be harder than it might seem, particularly when strong emotions have been provoked. We're wired to tend to just react in the moment. We don't stop to re-engage the reasoning areas of our brain. Here's an example that I went through recently. Last Sunday, I set in on the early service. Wayne and I sat over on that side, way in the back, which I haven't done since the new section of the sanctuary was completed. The singing and the music during the time for meditation and candle lighting was absolutely gorgeous. And suddenly, I found myself with tears in my eyes. And I couldn't stop the tears. Now, the story I told myself is that it was the beautiful music and that I'm always touched by this part of the service anyway. And I hadn't really seen how magnificent the new area of the sanctuary looks from the vantage point of being across from it. And that I've been feeling even more blessed than ever lately to be able to do ministry here in this place and with this religious community. And all of that was true. All of it was correct. And all of it was only part of the whole story. The, emotion, the emotions were much more complicated than that. The other part of the story is that I had just officiated at a memorial service the day before, and that in the days and weeks before, both as a minister and in my personal life, I'd spent a good deal of time with folks who were grieving and or suffering in some way. So when I had time later that Sunday to go back to that experience of the tears and pay attention to what had been going on within me, I discovered that I had internalized some of the grief of those other folks that wasn't really mine to take on. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't mean we shouldn't feel our own empathetic emotions when we witness other people's suffering. And it can be very, very easy to unconsciously absorb some of the grief and suffering of others. In extreme cases, this is called secondary trauma. I just mean that I think we have to pay attention to the possibility that this is happening because one, because if we don't, one, those feelings will find a different and potentially more destructive way to get out. And two, I don't think we can be as fully present for our loved ones and others who may need us if we haven't dealt with this stuff within ourselves. And this need to examine what's going on within ourselves plays out in so many settings. So, for instance, when we find ourselves angry with someone else, when we are feeling anxious about something, if we stop, pay attention to what we're feeling and the story we're telling ourselves as a result, what we will often discover is that there is a more accurate and less dire story than our negative emotions are causing us to construct. One of the pernicious things about negativity is that it tends to be self-reinforcing. Clinical psychologist and mindfulness coach Tara Brock has a practical, practical technique with the acronym RAIN for bringing our awareness back to a closer version of reality when we've been overwhelmed by such emotions. So, 
The R stands for recognize what is happening. Pay attention to the emotions coming up within us as well as any physical reactions like shortness of breath or muscle tightness. Don't judge them. Just acknowledge them, which in and of itself sometimes reduces their power over us. A. Allow life to be just as it is. Let yourself experience the feelings in the situation as it is. That doesn't mean we may not work for change later, but first, we have to accept what the current reality is. I. Investigate inner experience with kindness. What story am I telling myself, and is it accurate? What within me or my life most needs my attention right now? In what ways am I judging myself and causing shame? How can I treat myself and others in this situation with the same kindness I would show to a hurt child? And then finally, in non-identification. I am not the current situation. My present emotions are not the totality of all that I can and will feel. I have the agency to rewrite this story. So, Dr. Brock's reign is a practical way to stay mindful. And I think the contemplative practices can also help us become more capable of remaining mindful. Meditation, journaling, prayer, just sitting on the ground and truly paying attention to the intricacies of life and nature all around us, like in the story that Bear just read. Noticing the sound of the water when we shower in the morning. Stopping to pay attention to how the sunlight fills on our face when we first walk out the door. Stop. Pause. Notice. It can be that simple. Now, Dr. Hansen offers another practical way to draw our attention into the present moment and to focus it upon positive experience. So I want to invite you now to engage with me in his meditation for self-directed positive neuroplasticity. I invite you to close your eyes. Close your eyes. Take a few deep breaths. And then follow along as I read Dr. Hansen's guidance for this meditation. Have. Find a pleasant sensation that's already present in the foreground or background of your awareness. Perhaps a relaxed feeling of breathing. A comfortable warmth or coolness. A bodily sense of vitality or aliveness. Perhaps warmth you sense from those around you. The sensation could be subtle. It could be mild. And there may be other sensations or thoughts or feelings that are uncomfortable. And that's okay. Just Try to let go of those for now and bring your attention to the pleasant sensation.
enrich. Stay with the pleasant sensation. Explore it a little. What's it like? Help it last. Keep your attention on it. Come back to it if your attention wanders. Open to this sensation in your mind and body. Without stressing or straining, see if it can become even fuller, even more intense. See if you can embody it through small actions such as shifting your body to breathe more fully or smiling softly. Absorb, intend and sense that the pleasant sensation is sinking into you. Imagine the experience weaving its way into you like water soaking into a sponge. Let the sensation become a part of you. In this absorbing, let there be a sense of receiving, softening, sinking into the experience as it sinks into you. As we slowly come out of the meditation now, I send you wishes that Dr. Hansen exercise gave you at least a sense of the potential power of paying deep attention to the good. And if it didn't this time, I hope you'll give it a few more tries. The Latin roots of our word attention mean to stretch toward. So where we place our attention may well determine the direction that calls us into our future. I leave you with words from writer and poet Annie Dillard. At a certain point, you say to the woods, to the sea, to the mountains, the world, now I am ready. Now I will stop and be wholly attentive. You empty yourself and wait, listening. And amen, Annie. Now please say with me our words for extinguishing the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. As you go back out into the world now, may your attention be drawn to that which is life-giving, that which nourishes your soul. May the congregation say amen, amen. and blessed be. blessed be. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.